This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. Today, federal agencies are seeking low-cost, high-quality IT products and services through the efficient and economical use of innovative government-wide acquisition contracts. NITAC, NIH's Information Technology Acquisition and Assessment Center, plays an integral role in this effort, providing a full-service acquisition program that administers three government-wide acquisition contracts, GWACs, for information technology acquisitions. What are the key priorities for NITAC, and how does NITAC assist federal agencies to accomplish their missions? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Bridget Gower, Acting Director of NITAC. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Tom Bertke. Bridget, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Why, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Great. Tom, welcome as always. Thanks, Michael. So, uh, Bridget, would you tell us more about the history and mission of NIH's Information Technology Acquisition Assessment Center, NITAC? You know, what's funny is that we I was talking to Tom, you know, before this, and he's been part of the family much longer than I have <laughs> in the NITAC nation. So um, I hope I do this justice uh, in explaining, you know, about the, the NITAC. You know, we've been around for 20 years you know, our mission came out of the Clear Cohen Act as an OMB executive agent. You know, our job is to streamline the acquisition process for the information technology requirements of the federal government. You know, and that is primarily what we're all about, streamlining. So how is NITAC organized, uh, sort of the mix and size of your product and services portfolio, your budget, number of folks uh, who work with you, and how are you funded? So we're a fee-for-service organization. We do charge a fee for our customers to use our contracts. I will say it is the lowest fee of all our, <laughs> our uh, of all the GWACs. Good plug. But we, because of that, we need the flexibility to grow, and we have significantly in the last couple years. We have um, a mix of federal employees, primarily um, contracting officers that support our assisted acquisition um, arm. And then contractors that support our IT functions, our day-to-day operations, and our administration functions needed for the GWACs. We also have um, government contracting officers that administer all the GWACs and, and provide all the oversight. And we might get into it later, but what is a GWAC? A GWAC, yes, that that funny acronym. Because that's part of your portfolio and product and services, right? It's it's primarily um, what our mission is all about. Okay. OMB has um, uh, designated us as an as a um, an agent with the responsibility of awarding and administering government wide acquisition contracts. 
So when we talk about government-wide acquisition contracts, or GWACs, they are contracts, IDIQ, indefinite delivery, indefinite quantity contracts, that any federal agency can use to um, award information technology requirements. The reason they were they were put together is because, you know, years ago, IT moves so quickly mm-hmm. that you've got to be able to get it obligated or put it on contracts, get your contract needs awarded quickly, and that wasn't happening before the technology was obsolete. So, um, you know, this is, a, this is a mechanism to streamline the acquisition process, and through the GWAC, it, it just makes it so much easier. And that includes both products and services as requirements, or is there a distinction? Um, we have we have everything IT available okay. because we have three GWACs. Mm-hmm. Um, we have our CIO SB3, our CIO SB3 Small Business, and our CIO CS, which is our newest GWAC. And we'll be talking about those. So, Bridget, let's talk a little bit about your specific responsibilities. What are your duties and responsibilities as the acting director of NITAC? So, you know, my my primary responsibility is to set the strategic vision for the organization, you know, find out what we need to do to be competitive and not competitive with other GWACs, but to be useful and of a value to the federal government in, in meeting their IT um, needs. You know, right now there's a there's a big push on category management big push um, for, you know, issues with cybersecurity. We need to make sure that we're postured to to support those agencies with those needs. And those are some big things. I mean, uh, category management, but the cyber is huge today. So with those, you know, back as your backdrop, the responsibilities and duties that you have, what are some of your top, say, three challenges you face? How have you sought to address those challenges? So, you know, one of our, our big challenges right now is, um, you know, we have our CIO SB3 small business vehicle. We're in year five of that GWACA. It's a 10-year contract. Um, and a lot of our small businesses are recertifying at this point. So last year, we announced a, a ramp on to that vehicle. Um, that solicitation closed last May. We received an overwhelming response wow. from uh, industry. And we're still in evaluation. Um, you, you know, we've gotten a couple protests along the way. Um, and we we want to wrap that up as quickly as possible because we know, you know, a lot of contractors have put a lot of effort into their proposals. And, and it's been a long time. And we, we want to make sure that they it gets done in a, in a, um, in a, in a timely manner. Mm-hmm. Another priority is um, I'm very involved with the category management, with Mary Davey, uh, the IT category management. As you may know, NIH was asked to be the lead for the laptops and desktops under the government strategic solutions as of um, this calendar year. With that, you know, OMB has has moved forward with the best-in-class uh, assessments. We have been designated as well as NASA SOUP and, and GSA Schedule 70 as best-in-class organizations for laptops and desktops. And we're pursuing more best-in-class designations. Um, we're looking at our CIO CS, which is our commodity solutions contract. I'm trying to get that designated as a best-in-class as a vehicle. With that best-in-class designation, it's not, I'm a GWAC holder, so you're going to be a best in class. There's a lot that that goes into that. We are able to, we track all the data from the perspective of what is purchased on that, that vehicle. We provide an analysis of 
of that data so that we can look at how the government spends in the, in the IT um, commodity and how we can support future um, category management. With Fitara, a lot of your CIOs have uh, uh, you know data requirements. We want to be that source and be able to say, here's your spend data so that you can meet those requirements. What surprised you the most in your current role since you've taken it over? Um, I you know, I took over a lot of uh, getting out in, in the public, or, you know, with the industry and, and with the federal workforce in this position. And I'm surprised at how many people really don't know what the NITAC program um, has to offer and about the GWACs. And then I've also um, found that there's got to be a learning process about what is fair opportunity and, and how that works. So let's learn a little bit more about yourself and your career path. Um, how did you begin your career? What brought you to your current leadership role? So I'm, I'm one of those federal employees that's been around for quite some time. Um, I started my career back in 1985. Actually, um, I'll, I'll skip over some because I, I, I was not in the contracting field. I've been in the contracting field for over 20 years. Got there through a reduction in force um, oh, back with the with the Army back in, in 19 in the early 90s when they were the troops were drawing down. But um, worked worked in the field where I think you get a lot of uh, a true contracting experience. You you work with a lot of experienced contracting officers. Came to the D.C. area in, in 2000 from the field, got really engrossed into uh, the DHS, Homeland Security, worked at headquarters in, on the onset, and, and the experience there is it was over, overwhelmingly great. I mean, I, I, I can't say what a great opportunity it was to stand up a, a new department. I've been able to diversify in my career. I've worked with program offices. So, you know, I've, I've been a program manager to see how the customer relates to the, the procurement folks and work with them. So it's kind of nice to be on both sides. Um, I worked with the Transportation Security Administration, um, worked in their program office, their, their largest program offices, their passenger and, and, and baggage screening program office. And um, I've also worked um, at other federal agencies, been their, their top contracting officer, um, their chief contracting officer. I was brought back to HHS working in their emergency management organization, which, you, you know, the one thing about, about being in contracting is the missions are so great. And I, I can only say that um, I've worked on some very significant missions I've had some great opportunities in my career. I've been able to attend uh, the Residence uh, Naval War College, which I would never take back that opportunity. I I mean, anybody that has that opportunity, um, I would definitely take it because I think you learn a lot about primarily the Department of Defense and some of the political savviness that you need to to have in the, the federal space. I've been at NITAC now for almost two years, okay. which it, the time has just flown. It has. <laughs> it has flown. Um, uh, I've been the acting director. It will be a year in, in August. It was very challenging because mm-hmm. I've really been an operational contracting officer, and the NITAC is really not that type of organization. It's a, a very dynamic organization. You've got – the staff is is – Everybody is is so upbeat and really looking at how they can 
fulfill the mission of the NITAC and and make it grow, mm-hmm. which is which is really great. So what what um, what are the characteristics, given your experience and your background, uh, what makes an effective leader? So. Um, you know, one thing that I uh, it, probably to a fault, I have a candy jar in my in my office, and I I definitely have uh, the open door policy, and people definitely feel that they can come in and they can they can sit and have some candy and tell me what you know what they think. I am constantly telling everybody I don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. I I need your help in in determining what what we should do um, in the federal space. I've set that environment where where people feel comfortable in saying, this is really what I think we should be doing. I've got some very dynamic people, interesting personalities, um, and, you know, everybody brings something to the table, and I want them to know that they do. So... I'm very involved with with the staff, not as much since I'm traveling it more and and being the acting director. But I I still want them to know that I'm you know they can still email me and 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 I'm still I'm I'm still here, but you know stretched a little bit thinner. What are the key strategic priorities for NITAC? We will ask its acting director Bridget Gower when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. The latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine, and with each edition I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Bridget Gower, Acting Director of NITAC. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Tom Bertke. So, Bridget, um, folks listening may be very uh, familiar with uh, governmental mission support functions like finance and accounting, information technology, but not so clear about procurement functions. So could you give us a high-level overview of what exactly procurement or acquisition is? So I will tell you when when I was a program in on the program office I used to watch the the acquisition people they were behind a locked gate and I was wondering if that was to protect us or it was to protect <laughs> them you know once they let me over on the other side we looked at it as you know all all we do is buy mm-hmm. to meet the mission of the federal the federal government um there's a lot of regulations and people think it's really difficult with the Clinger Cohen Act of 1996, there was a lot of relooking at at procurement. You have the commercial items. Um, you've got um, a, again a, a, a lot of regulations, but there's there's mechanisms to make things streamlined. The biggest thing is that all we want to do is get the right tools to the federal user, and if we can do that in an expeditious manner. Then, then we're still procurement folks, mm-hmm. but we're at least helping meet the meet the mission in the timely manner. NITAC seeks to be a one-stop shop for IT acquisitions. Would you briefly highlight um, your key strategic goals and priorities that comprise NITAC acquisition strategy? So we, you know, have started with the with the assisted acquisitions. 
that's one of the big strategies because we saw a big void in the federal space, and we wanted to facilitate that void for agencies. Since I've taken over as the acting director, I've kind of changed that strategy a little bit because I have a background in in contracting. Mm -hmm. And in my career, I've taken an interest in federal contracting uh, interns and and junior folks um, and the journeyman um, level folks. And I look at it as, you know, a big strategy to using the NITAC vehicles is education um, and educating our federal workforce on really what the value is. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that's that's been a, a, a huge piece of, of, of the strategy. A secondary strategy is, and it, it dovetails into making it easy to, um, you know, buy what you need to get it and get it into the, the hands of the user as soon as possible, is, you know, the category management and the, and the government-wide strategic solutions. If we can leverage the, the federal government and, um, for example, with, you know, right now we're looking at cloud and saying, how can we help the federal, the federal government in um, meeting their, their IT modernization goals and leverage that spend through our vehicle to get them what they need from a cloud perspective. I mean, everybody needs cloud now, <laughs> right? Everybody's buying cloud. So, so how can we leverage that to make sure? And how can we how can we look at the procurement regulations and do what we can to make that fit? Mm-hmm. One thing that we've talked about a lot is every contracting officer has to determine something reasonable. What does that really mean? And when it comes to something like cloud, what does that mean? And how can we establish strategic solutions to um, reduce the, the, the administrative burdensome for the federal user? Another um, big solution as we look at you know the education is the um, solution showcases. Todd has done an awful lot with our solution showcases in that I've worked at a lot of different federal agencies and it, it, with a, a lot of different contracting um, missions. However, you know, we're, sometimes we're buying the same things and we're trying to solve the problem again, mm-hmm. where another agency has done it well. What we've tried to do is through our strategic our solution showcases is provide those videos of this is what our problem was, this is how we solved it. And, you know, this, this was the, the methodology with that mm-hmm. so that other federal employees or agents, agencies can say, hey, they've already tried this. It worked. Thanks for letting us know we shouldn't go that direction or we should go that direction. Earlier in the show, um, you mentioned one of your challenges, surprises was, is how many folks um, were just not aware of GWACs, NITAC, and even the CIO SP3 and CIO CS vehicles. Um, this is your opportunity to um, make a few comments towards the benefits and, and how special CIO SP3 is and how it stacks up against its competition. So I, I think CIO SP3 is, is very unique in that we actually have two contracts. We've got um, the CIO SB3 and the CIO SB3 small business. The, the small business vehicle was established so that agencies could, could meet their socioeconomic goals. So we've got five socioeconomic categories that were set aside. And so you can do your competition based on what socioeconomic uh, categories you need um, to meet your, your agency goals. The CIO SB3 
unrestricted and the CIO SB3 small business, they mirror in scope. Um, but primarily, you can get anything IT. And, and the greatest thing about those contracts is other vehicles are limited to commercial items, which if you're limited to commercial items, you're limited to um, what types of contracts you can you can put in place or what types of task orders. We actually, through our evaluation process, ensure that all our contract holders are able to do cost reimbursable task orders under, under our GWAC, which um, I know when you're doing these huge complex procurements, that's a benefit to not have to do um, a time and materials contract. And you can really use the, the proper type of, of contract. I know I'm getting really deep in the, the, into <laughs> contracting here. But, um, you know, th- that's, a, that's a true benefit. The other thing is, you know, our, our contracts, as, you know, we talked about the ramp on earlier and how it's taken, it, we've already been in evaluation for a year. Everybody that's on our, our CIO SB3 have been through that process as well. So, you know, the, we've got the, the best of the best. So you mentioned earlier, you talked about best in class, and I want to turn to that and expand on that. And I think it was the NITAC um, GSS program was best in class. What does this designation mean, and are there other vehicles that are best in class as well? So um, I, I, they just announced that the CIOCS GSS is best in class, um, and we partner with SOUP. Okay. Um, NASA Soup mm-hmm. and GSA Schedule 70. So we were all designated as a best-in-class for GSS. This is an OMB designation. Um, and as I mentioned, it's not something that just happens um, easily. There's a level of demonstration that we can provide the data that is necessary um, for um, analysis and that we're doing analysis and we're actually looking at supply chain management and doing a lot of thought and not just having vehicles sit there and and people use them, but we're really getting involved with the category management program and using data to make decisions. Mm -hmm. So is there any other vehicles that are going in this direction, do you think? Best in class. Um, Army Chess is also. I I I'm remiss to mention Army Chess. Uh, Army Chess has also been designated as a best in class um, vehicle. Um, they actually are part of our working group. They've okay. been included as a GSS um, holder as well. Even though the memo has not been the OMB memo has not been updated, Army Chess has some some great um, success stories and that we wanted to be able to capitalize on, and we felt. Felt that they were a really good, they're a really good partner in the specifically the laptops and the desktops. What is NITAC doing in the assisted services business? We will ask its acting director, Bridget Gower, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. Advances in biomedical research seek to enhance health and length of life and reduce the burdens of illness and disability. The National Institutes of Health, NIH, plays a significant role in making this happen. U.S. life expectancy has increased dramatically over the past century. Not only are people living longer, 
they're living healthier lives. However, as Dr. Francis Collins, director of NIH, notes, science is not a 100-yard dash. It's a marathon, a marathon run by a relay team that includes researchers, patients, industry experts, lawmakers, and the public. Dr. Collins outlines how basic research prompted a revolution in the diagnosis, treatment, and prevention of diseases, and what NIH is doing to advance biomedical research. NIH spends about 53% of its budget on basic research, and that would be defined as research on some aspect of biological processes that does not have an immediate implication or application to a disease. But you have to understand how life works at the most fundamental level before you can really understand what disease is all about. So this is the foundation of everything we do. And over the course of many decades, uh, the basic science research, which has led to no less than 135 Nobel Prizes for NIH-funded grantees, uh, is the way in which we've often then gotten to the next level of understanding about a biological process, and that in turn has led to insights about disease, which are now making big differences uh, clinically. If we want to continue to see those medical advances going forward 10, 20, 30 years from now, we need to be doing the basic science now that is going to provide that foundation. This foundation illustrates that basic discovery and the development of therapies go hand in hand. It's about understanding the genesis of disease at the fundamental level. Dr. Collins continues. Basic science, uh, trying to understand at the fundamental level, what are the causes of various rare diseases? Rare diseases collectively affect about 26 million Americans, and there are about 7,000 of these rare diseases. In the space of just the last 10 years, we've uncovered, using basic science strategies, the molecular basis of about 4,700 of those diseases, just breathtaking the rate at which this insight has been coming forward. Of course, that's useful in terms of getting a grasp on what the diseases are all about, but what you really want is to translate that into an intervention. Only about 250 of those diseases currently have any treatment at all. In the end, it's about turning discovery into action, which, though necessary, is quite risky. Here's Dr. Collins. By having now made those basic discoveries, we're poised uh, to be able to translate that into action. And that is, in fact, a major focus of a new center uh, at NIH, the National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences. There are a number of steps that you want to follow once you understand the molecular basis of a disease. They're complicated, they're failure-prone, they're risky, but we know increasingly uh, how to do that. And that's a, a great example of how, at the present time, the basic science informs the translation. I should say, this is also a virtuous circle, that, that when you make a, an observation at the basic level that leads you to clinical insight, sometimes when you try this out clinically, you learn something about the basics as well. And you go around that virtuous cir circle to your benefit uh, over and over again. How does the new National Center for Advancing Translational Science work to make all this a reality? Dr. Collins elaborates. So NCATS, this National Center for Advancing Translational Sciences, was very much founded on the need to try to identify what are those systematic bottlenecks that cause this process to be so challenging. And it is. The average time it takes to go from a good idea about a new treatment to getting that drug approved is 14 years. 
the failure rate is well over 99%. Now, an engineer looking at a pipeline like that would say, come on, there must be something better you could do here uh, to improve success and shorten the time. And that's what NCATS aims to do, to look systematically in a way that no single project focus would achieve. Where are the bottlenecks? Where are the things where we lose momentum where time goes by more than it should, uh, where failure rates are way too high. Could we take some of the new science that's coming forward in the last few years and really re-engineer that pipeline? That's what we're trying to do. Today, technological advances are driving science. We need to look no further than the cost of DNA sequencing to see this dynamic at work. The cost curve for sequencing is dropping at a breathtaking rate. Sequencing speed has increased even faster than computer processing speed. Dr. Collins elaborates on the implication of this trend. If you want to pick an area of technology that just takes your breath away in terms of the speed of its progress, uh, it would be DNA sequencing. That first human genome sequence that I had the privilege of overseeing the team that managed to pull this off cost about $400 million uh, when it was completed in 2003. You can now get your human genome sequenced uh, for about $7,000. <laughs> Think about that, $400 million down to $7,000 in the space of just about nine years, and the cost continues to plummet. So we will, in the next three to four years, certainly achieve uh, this goal that many people thought was a bit overly audacious, uh, namely the $1,000 genome, but we're well on the way to achieving that. How will that change things? Well, it already is changing things in cancer, increasingly as part of research studies, and it won't be long before this finds its way into the management of cancer in general, is the desire to know in any given individual's cancer exactly what has gone wrong in those cancer cells that's causing them to grow faster than they're supposed to, because cancer is a disease of the genome. And now we have the chance uh, to look comprehensively each individual at a time uh, in what's gone wrong there and what you might want to do about it. Because knowing that, you can then choose the right combination of targeted therapies that are not one size fits all, but are designed for that person's specific molecular signature. That's just one example. Certainly, all of us in the next decade will probably have the chance to have our complete genome sequences placed into our medical record. That will give insights into what you might be at risk for in the future. It will give insights into, if you fall ill, what drugs should be used for you and what dose, because individual differences can be predicted uh, by a study of the DNA. So it is going to transform the way we approach many medical problems, but not overnight. There were some overly optimistic predictions that this was going to happen in the blink of an eye. It takes a lot of hard work, a lot of research, a lot of driving the cost down to make those things come true. Why is the work that NIH does so important? Here's Dr. Francis Collins. I would say there has never been a better time in all of history than right now to come and join this enterprise. We are unraveling mysteries that have puzzled us for all of human history. We're poised to take that information to the next level in terms of preventing and treating disease. We have the chance to bring the basic and the clinical aspects of research uh, together in a very tight uh, connection and a virtuous circle. This would be the moment uh, if you're 
in any way inclined uh, to get involved in a great detective story that has great answers, uh, come and join the biomedical research team. We've got stuff for you to do. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. What is the Food and Drug Administration's IT strategy? How is FDA changing the way it does IT? What is FDA doing to leverage the advances of mobile technologies? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more with Todd Simpson, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Bridget Gower, Acting Director of NITAC. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Tom Bertke. So, Bridget, uh, NITAC has ventured into assisted services business, um, and I understand that in 2013, uh, it made it available to civilian agencies, and in 2000, FY 2016, the DOD was added. What prompted this move? So, um, it, you know, I mentioned um, before, there's a true void in there's a shortage of contracting officers or contracting professionals um, in 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 the federal government, in my opinion, and budgets continue to get bigger. And you know, we talked about the procurement process, and you've got to buy things, and uh, so the acquisition budgets continue to grow, and, and but the acquisition community has not. Interesting. As a mechanism to help facilitate that void, as a pilot program in, in 2013, established an assisted acquisition group. Years ago, we did have assisted acquisitions, but we determined that it, we, we didn't want to um, continue that many, many years ago, I think about 10 years ago. But we said, okay, it's a big need. We've, we've got to provide this. It, with the civilian agencies, it went really well. You know, I will say that we, we get probably more than we can handle. Um, and we're very particular about whose procurements we do because we only want to do what we can do well. We had been asked over and over again from DOD customers, would you help us with our procurements? And, you know, we wanted to make sure we had adequate staffing. Um, we wanted to make sure that we, we could support them in a, in, a, in a quality manner. We started accepting DOD assisted acquisitions in 2016. If I could just expand on this question a little bit, um, I know it's premature to already talk about the end of the fiscal year, um, but it's really around the corner when it comes to federal contracting. And I know in previous years, at some point, even with your staff, you get to a point where you have to start turning folks down as we get closer to the fiscal year. How does your pipeline look right now for assisted services, and how much longer will your window be open for uh, prime contract holders to let customers know to, to refer you in for your assisted service program? So we've, we've, exta- we've established a, a cutoff of July 15th for assisted acquisitions, and that is primarily so that you know, we can work with the customer. We have adequate time to allow our contract holders to uh, formulate their responses to task order requests. When you're doing assisted acquisitions, you've got to move money. And many agencies, including our own, have cutoffs for 
how we can get their money in, in into our hopper so that we can spend it for them. And so we've got to have some of those cutoffs. I, I will tell you, we do take some assisted acquisitions on a case-by-case basis after that date. But it, it just makes for good contracting to, to make sure that we have an adequate time to do it well. And it's good to have a, a drop-dead date like that. I appreciate you mentioning that, Bridget. So you've got two main vehicles, the CIOSP3, large and small, and the CIOCS. Both are um, promoted and really solutions contracts um, that allow both for services and product buys. Um, when do you recommend one versus the other? Uh, and is that a decision that you and ITAC make when a requirement could almost fit in either bucket, or is that a uh, ordering agency decision? So, you know, we've we've got two types of people that use our contracts. We've got our ordering contracting officers, which are the contracting officers from all the different federal agencies, and then we have our assisted acquisition contracting officers that are housed in the in the NITAC. The ordering contracting officers from the various agencies, they have broad latitude to make those decisions. They basically control the procurement from start to finish. Any protest that comes up, they um, take care of that. They evaluate. They make awards. So they would make that determination. On the assisted side, you know, our contracting officers, we would talk with our customer and see if they have a preference. But we do do scope reviews and make sure that, that we fit into the proper GWAC. We are GWAC neutral because we have three, and there is some overlap. But my rule of thumb would be if it's a very service-driven um, requirement, it would better suit be suited for CIO SB3. If it's more a commodity solution where it may have a, a little bit of service, but more the commodity, I would say it would be it would fit better on the CS contract. Because we also have a fee cap on CIO SB three, we wanted to um, allow folks to to feel the same benefits on the CIO CS. So we put a fee cap on the CIO CS so that they would even be neutral. Because we had some customers say, "Well, you know, we'd rather use SB three because of the fee for for the complexity of our contract. The fee is going to be much higher." And what is that fee cap? So the fee caps vary from vehicle. The unrestricted vehicle is, um, let me talk about the the fees in general, is 0.65% for the unrestricted. It's a 0.55% for the CIO SB3 small business. And the fee fee for the CIO CS is 0.35. We put a fee cap of $150,000 on the CIO SB3. And a fee cap of seventy thousand on the CS, but because the fees are lower on the CS, there's a higher there's a higher threshold. So, Bridget, how do you uh, strategically structure an acquisition upfront to limit the potential for protests? And do you find that contractor debriefs help or hurt the effort? And what changes can happen to minimize it? So, the great thing about using a GWAC is that there's only a few things that you can protest. <laughs> And actually, the protest authority uh, expired in September thir- September 30th and was reenacted. Um, it, but there was a window where there was no protest. And it was like, boy, this should be open season for, for a contracting <laughs> officer, you know. Anything under $10 million is not protestable. And as a contracting officer that's had protests at $39,000, that's kind of a nice perk for using the GWACs. There's also only three things that, that can be um, protested. 
if it's over the ceiling of our contracts. And our contracts are $20 billion ceilings. So we haven't come up with that issue yet. Mm -hmm. um, the period, of, it's outside the period of performance, which our contracts are over 10, year, or 10 years. And uh, it's out of scope. Mm -hmm. So what we do for our customers to, to help mitigate this, this risk is we do scope reviews on the CIOCS or the CIO SB3 contract before they're released to make sure that we've used the right task areas and everything is in scope. Mm -hmm. That is the, the best way that we, we mitigate. Are there other procedures in place to help resolve protests more quickly? Um, we do have the agency Protests. Um, we do have, um, and and then they would go to GAO. GAO. Yes. So you know, you mentioned a couple of times category management. What is the future of category management and government procurement? And what, more importantly, is NITAC's role using category management? Well, um, we, you know, there's even in you know in executive orders. Um, you know, we're all short staff, especially in the contracting career or or line of business. And so if we can make it, as I mentioned before, if we can make it as easy as possible for our, our contracting officers to get their agencies what they need, this could be, other than, you know, the cost savings of category management, this is a, this is a mechanism um, for our contracting officers to really reduce the amount of time that they're using. And you, they'll be able, I hate to say it, but they'll be able to take on more. I don't know too many contracting officers that don't have enough to do. So this is a mechanism to help them really manage their workload by using the, the, the laptops and desktops as an example. They can just go to our website and anything... We've already got a catalog of all the offerings, and I know in past times it's it's hard to really convince people that it can really be that easy as to just go and pick and click, you know, but that could be a significant time savings. We're also showing that, you know, there's, there's a considerable amount of savings. The government buys a lot of stuff, mm -hmm. and if we all buy it together— you know, we're, we're able to really leverage that spend to, to get a reduction in pricing. And being part of this, this initiative is great. We're also looking at a lot of things in the supply chain that, you know, you talk about cybersecurity, you talk about all, you know, lots of, lots of different threats. And, you know, if we can help in, in that area as well, it would be so beneficial to the... There's a lot of contracting officers that don't have that depth of experience to know what they should really be looking for. If we can um, take some of that risk away from them and say, we've got it covered, I think that's very beneficial to the federal contracting workforce. How is NITAC using collaboration and partnerships to improve its operations? We will ask its acting director, Bridget Gower, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. From forging a unity of effort in homeland security, to strategizing today how to feel the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us today. Hi, I'm Michael Keegan, the editor of the Business of Government magazine. And with each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront these issues. Check out the latest edition of the Business of Government magazine and find out. 
we bring you insights and interviews from government executives who are changing the way government does business. Download or order a free copy at businessofgovernment.org. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness. Brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource, a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. For more than six decades, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, NIAID, has been at the forefront of important research in infectious and immune-mediated diseases, microbiology, immunology, and related disciplines. This work has led to new vaccines, therapeutics, diagnostics, and other technologies that have improved health and saved millions of lives in the United States and around the world. Our guest today is Dr. Anthony Fauci director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. What are your four core uh, principles around guiding your international portfolio and responsibilities? Well, there are a number of core principles, and, and they're very important. The first is that when you're dealing with a foreign country, which is usually a developing nation of low and middle income, that you must do your experiments with the highest degree of ethical guidelines and ethical considerations. That's Point number one. Point number two is you've got to engage in a true partnership with the country. It can't be paternalistic where you come in and you tell them what's good for them. You've got to have a partnership. That's the other one. The third is that you must conduct research whose ultimate goal is the benefit of the people on whom you're doing the research. So to go into a foreign country and do the kind of research that would ultimately be of no benefit to them, but would be benefit to you back home because they unlikely would ever be able to either afford or wouldn't apply to their population, would be unethical. So it would have to be to the benefit of the group. And the other, you have to be very transparent and share information so that if you do research in a country, you've got to make all of the information totally available to those people who participated in that. I often talk to my guests about the importance of collaboration and partnerships in achieving mission outcomes. Um, How are you leveraging partnerships and improving your outcomes and operations? Well, we have a number of partnerships both within the federal government and outside the federal government. I'll give you some examples. We very closely collaborate and partner with the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, many collaborations with the Department of State, for example, the PEPFAR program. Mm -hmm. We collaborate with the Department of Homeland Security with the biodefense. We uh, collaborate with the Department of Defense because a lot of the vaccines that we make are important for the troops. So you're talking about a whole number of different departments, USAID, uh, others that we collaborate with. Then when you get outside of the federal government, we collaborate with organizations like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the Clinton Foundation, Médecins Sans Frontières, Doctors Without Borders, and others, various stop TB programs and malaria programs. And the importance of that collaboration is that it really provides for what we call a synergy of ideas. Because if you go it alone, you really deprive yourself of the expertise and the perspective of others who come from it from a different angle. 
And that's the reason why we very much embrace these kinds of collaborations, because it's good for everyone. So, Doctor, what, um, what technological advancement or um, new use of scientific technology has made your mission either more effective or easier? And what are some of the risks and benefits of these things? Well, I, from the standpoint of infectious diseases, yeah. I think that uh, there are a number of technologies. Let me just pick out one that is really transforming. And that is the ability to rapidly sequence microbes, the genome of microbes. And when I say rapidly, I'm saying that the first microbe that was sequenced decades ago took about a year and about $40 million to do. We can do it in a few hours for a couple of dollars now. Uh, it's just breathtaking what you can do. We refer to it as next-generation sequencing, NGS, or deep sequencing, where you could take a quasi-species of viruses and sequence every single one of them and know the signatures of resistance, the signatures of transmissibility, the signatures of pathogenesis. We were not able to do that years ago. We can do it now in any really good university-type laboratory. That, to me, is the application of the capabilities of genomics, proteomics, informatics. And by informatics, we mean the ability to process all of this amazing amount of data that you collect that no human could sit down and decipher it. You need people who really know their way around informatic computerization of data to be able to give you the answer. To me, that has been technically the most transforming advance that we've been able to make. So what advice would you give someone who's thinking about perhaps a career in public service or medicine or both? Well, the advice I would give them would be that if that's something you have an interest in, pursue it and don't let anything get in the way of pursuing it because the, the, the gratification that you get uh, out of uh, public service and helping people, particularly in the arena of discovery with all of the excitement of discovering something new. If you're not a basic scientist, but you just want to be a person who is a public health person, either a physician or a nurse or a healthcare deliverer, there's nothing that feels better than making someone feel better in the sense of alleviating pain and suffering, prolonging life in a meaningful way. That's something that you just, you can't buy that anywhere. You just, it, it's there and it's, for some people to make that their career. And I would suggest if you even have the slightest interest in that, that's a very gratifying career. More information on this and other center resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been The Center This Week. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Bridget Gower, Acting Director of NITAC. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Tom Bertke. So, Bridget, what's next for NITAC? President Trump indicated that shared services should be part of cybersecurity plans moving forward in his latest executive order. Does NITAC have a plan for cloud? We're working on it. It's mm -hmm. a it's a hard it, it it's it's a hard problem. You know, if it was if if it was easy, everybody would have the solution. But we definitely want to tackle it. We're hoping to 
be working with Mary Davy um, and category the category management team to see how how we can play in in that environment and how we can help. I've tried to be kind of like the I don't want to call the the rogue contracting officer, but the the person that is using her experience with the FAR to figure out how how we can remove those those administrative burdens. To, for example, that you know the the as you grow, the cloud continues to decrease in in cost or price. Um, so, so how can we make sure that our federal customers are getting that decrease or that the benefits of that? And you know, looking at that from a federal federal procurement standpoint, I think we're we're trying to get there and. You know, we're gonna we're gonna see how we can help. You partially answered my next question, but will working with service-based technology such as cloud, uh, that's typically price volatile, um, change the way procurement officers structure and think about the way they do business? Yes, it's a complex problem. How do you change? As I mentioned, how do you change the the way you think about price reasonableness? Mm-hmm. You know, I go back to 1996 and 1997. Um, I worked for a very savvy um, contracting officer early in my contracting career, and she said, you know, we should be able to get voluntary discounts from our, our contract holders, but we, we don't want to delay making the contract award because we know what the price is going to be today, but we need to set a mechanism where where we can get voluntary discounts from the contractor um, throughout the process and it not be burdensome where we have to do a 1,000 mods mm-hmm. to get there. I think that's a that's something that we really, as, as NITAC and, and – other other category management partners can look at and see how how we can use the flexibilities in our vehicles to do that. So, uh, Bridget, I talked to many of my guests about um, the use of collaboration and partnerships um, among agencies and with the private sector to achieve mission results. How are you folks at NITAC using partnerships and collaboration to improve operations, achieve program outcomes, and um, mission execution? So just using the cloud as an example, you know, we've reached out to our contract holders. You know, our contract holders are are leaders in industry. So I know I've spoke with lots of our contract holders. Um, I know we've spoken about how should we do this? You know, what what would be, you know, as an expert in this area, what would be your your thoughts on how we should put a, a strategic sourcing vehicle together for cloud? We've also reached out to other industry um, partners, CIOs. I, I'm working with NCMA mm-hmm. and other contracting organizations to see how we can be of the best value um, to federal partners and federal federal agencies. As I as I mentioned, I don't have all the answers. If you go back to, uh, I always remember Leslie Field speaking at, um, you know, one of the category management conferences. And she said, you know, we put out those myth busters, you know, about talking to industry about market research and really what market research is. And um, I think people have forgotten or need to be reminded of, you know, how valuable it is to, to reach out to your partners like your contract holders and industry to help um, uh, solve some of those hard problems. So, Bridget, uh, as you reflect on your career in public service, what advice would you give someone who may be thinking about a career in public service? 
I don't know if there's anywhere that you can get so many opportunities in one place. I, I've been in the federal government in June. It will be 30 years. And I've had several different careers within that 30 years. I've worked at, in recreation, which, you know, was very fun. Um, and um, but, but I've supported the, the mission of several different agencies. And, and they, they've had significant um, missions. You know, I've worked with the Army. I've worked with the Department of Homeland Security with a couple of their different components. I've worked with the FCC, mm-hmm. where I, you know, I, I've had opportunities to to work with dynamic people. And like Steve Rokel, I worked for Steve Rokel at FCC. And it's very nice to see someone from industry come out and and you see a different a, a different perspective. And I don't know that there's a, a another organization out there or, an, or a business that that you could have all those different opportunities. I think the federal government, there's, you know, the things that I would probably tell someone that's coming in, don't worry as much about the grades as the experience that you're getting. I know there were times in my career where I could have gone for the the promotions, mm-hmm. but thinking back and saying. Should I go to the war college or should I get it promoted? I was very happy that I took that time to um, go to the war college over a quick promotion. So I would also um, tell people kind of plan out what you want to do and what stepping stones you want to get into the the positions that you want to be. You know, experience is a big thing. I've done a lot of jobs at a very low grade that are the same as other jobs that are at a very high grade. So don't think that just because it's it's it, it, looking at the grade levels, it's not an important job. Every every job is important. Mm-hmm. Great way to end it. So thank you for coming in today. Uh, but more importantly, Tom and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Why, thank you. I'm so happy to have been a, been a federal employee for almost 30 years. I hope that... Um, Contracting officers will be at NCMA because I'm going to give um, uh, speak on fair opportunity and, and and dabble a little bit on our our contract. When is that? That is in July. Um, it's the it starts July 23rd. It's in Chicago this year, so um, it should be a great event. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Bridget Gower, acting director of NITAC. My co-host from IBM has been Tom Burtke. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What is the Food and Drug Administration's IT strategy? How is FDA changing the way it does IT? What is FDA doing to leverage the advances of mobile technologies? Join host Michael Keegan next week as he explores these questions and more with Todd Simpson, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Tune in on Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.